Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show. This week we are looking at the three single biggest risks facing global investment markets. Plenty to digest in here, get your pen and pencil out and uh, take plenty of notes because these will affect everybody. Look forward to seeing you in the show. Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing Show with me, your host, Andrew Baxter, and as always, my offsider and co-host, Mitchell Laurential. Pleasure to be here, Mr. Baxter. Thanks for having me. You sound a lot clearer for some reason today. New paint on the wall too. New paint on the wall, new microphone in front of us, and uh, certainly some great content to cover today too. So what have you got for me? All right. Well, really, I think an overarching podcast here, we can talk about markets, um, geopolitics, as well as the economics behind what's driving markets right now. The three biggest risks in financial markets right now. Let's get your gauge on it. Three biggest. Okay, I'll be struggling to get it down to three, but we'll see what we can do, hey? There's plenty going on, I know, yeah. but we're going to have to confine this. So your three biggest risks right now. I think overarching all three of these, and I'm buying myself a second here, is the biggest risk of all is is inaction or not knowing what to do. So getting upskilled and being able to take advantages of these three that we're going to talk about certainly is a, is a huge thing for people. Totally. And the education boiling down to your understanding of fundamental analysis and what's driving economics right now is key, right? And the confidence to follow through with action is is absolutely paramount. So look, first one up, I think I would identify would have to be China. Um, and specifically within China, obviously, we've seen uh, the, the major ructions going on within the property market there and specifically with the developers, you know, a couple to name would be uh, Fantasia and, of course, Evergrande, which, uh, you know, have dominated uh, the news flow for, for a number of weeks now. The level of gearing that they've got and, and to put this into context, so a developer in Australia typically will work off five to one uh, type of leverage. Uh, these guys are working 80 percent leverage, so they're four times as geared as your average developer would be in Australia. So they're really redlining that space. And in all fairness, in China's case, you've had a situation where you've compressed like two centuries of capitalism into 15 to 20 years. And it's not surprised that there's some smoke coming off the, the bearings in the wheels, uh, given how aggressive the expansion has been. And also, you know, the migration, which has obviously underpinned the property market there, that migration of people from rural areas into China's major cities, both from a, an industrial point of view and, and that overall pool then of, of, of the de-ruralization of a country as it becomes more either service-based or industrial. So there's been massive, massive demand for property, uh, but that demand certainly appears to be evaporating at a rate of knots. Um, you have 90 million empty properties. It's a pretty high vacancy rate. It is. And, and, and more importantly, I think it's okay having an empty property if the price of that property is moving up, but we're starting to see those property prices drop. So an investor's got no tenant, and they've never had a tenant, they've bought off the plan with a view to their property being worth a lot more over time as more and more people migrate from the country to the cities. Maybe that migration is kind of stopped or at least stalled. And it certainly has in some cities, not the case in, in places like Beijing, Shenzhen, uh, and some of the more, uh, you know, the Shanghai, the major cities. But outside of that, certainly that migration flow has stopped. So you've got empty properties that are no longer going up in value, creating an oversupply and certainly weighing very, very heavily on those developers that are massively geared uh, into, into that run into property. So if we talk about how this might affect our stock market here, mm. AB, given that's our bread and butter, mm. we talk about the property market in China, we talk about iron ore and steel production mm. and whatnot. How has that factored into some of the movements, I guess, we've seen over the last sort of three or four months? Look, we've seen iron ore as an example come from a price of over $200 a ton down to around 90 as we speak, yeah, which is a, you know, a pretty significant move and hence why companies like BHP, Fortescue, Rio have borne the brunt of that pullback, if you will. Uh, why uh, the, the price of iron uh, dropping so much? Well, quite frankly, you know, China's 
developers. Uh, it's not like a, a housing estate where there's single dwelling house and land. It's all high rise type stuff, uh, given the density of population in the cities. And that requires enormous quantities of steel. Uh, and I think Evergrande was cited as being 2%, I think of- uh, 2% of their annual GDP. This is big stuff. Yeah, so it's a huge, huge impact, big consumer of iron and steel. Uh, and so that's gonna weigh very, very heavily. And of course the knock-on effects when your economy has been driven um, you know, very, very hard by um, interest in property and the run in property. Uh, when that stops, all of a sudden, um, you know, there's not a lot of uh, support underneath. There's a lot of air for things to drop down. And I think Australia probably uh, should take some note of that, given the fact that, you know, property has been such a, a substantial driver of our economic recovery from pandemic. I think it, it also poses that overarching question is, uh, are we too reliant on China, AB? Look, it's our biggest trading partner and it's a very large void to fill, so you can't say, "Oh, we'll go, we'll go find somebody else to buy our stuff," because <laughs> yeah, the, the volumes that they've been moving through certainly um, uh, has been astronomical. I think also it's lazy on the part of our exporters, and I don't mean that in a, it to sound probably as 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 attacking as it is. But when you found a really good market, you kind of stop maybe exploring other markets to get into, and we have become very reliant on that. And you take it back from a political point of view um, to you know, probably as far back as Kevin Rudd and the nonsense that, that went on during that era, um, where you know this is our partner and this is it, and, and, and China is a partner, it shouldn't be the partner. Uh, and that notion of free trade is, is especially important. We've seen obviously the trade talks uh, and, and, and disputes with China uh, really spread across you know, a vast array from you know, barley and wheat to, to lobster to wine to beef and live cattle exports, then steel, iron, coal. You know, the, the list has really gone on. So they've made it very clear that their intention is that you know there is no special relationship with Australia. So it is a, a major, major um, risk on. And it's not just the, the, the economic risk either. And so far as, um, you know, if you look at the geopolitical tensions uh, in Taiwan, uh, you know, you've got hundreds of Chinese aircraft in, intruding on their airspace on a regular basis uh, and a fair bit of sabre rattling. There's a conflict on the border in the Himalayas with India. Um, you know, they're, they're kind of you know, really chest up at the moment and, and puffing it. And we seem to be doing a very good job of, of antagonising that, which probably isn't the smartest thing. But, you know, this is what happens. You've got politics in Australia as it is in most of the Western world on a four-year cycle versus um, a political landscape which is decades long, uh, taking the long view. So yeah, there's huge risk uh, both for the global economy and for China. You know, if Evergrande and the like fall over, the, 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 the impact of that $400 billion of debt will be felt by lenders the world over and you'll probably get something of a credit crunch. Maybe not the same as what we saw in the GFC, but of a similar ilk. This one's been a little bit more, a uh, little bit better telegraphed, I suppose. People are aware of it. And uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how China, uh, which is new to the world of capitalism, I suppose, um, stands up and plays its role. Uh, yeah, during the GFC, we had the US Federal Reserve, of course, it backstopped the financial sector. Um, will China do the same thing for its economy? And that's a, a huge unknown, and markets hate unknowns. Interesting to see, and I think Evergrande actually met their interest repayments last mm. week. Some stretch of the imagination they got there, but changing pace now, AB, and mm. staying on the topic of, of politics, let's uh, let's maybe transition to that in the US and someone who I know you've just uh, turned the same age as this gentleman, Mr. Joe <laughs> Biden, both 99 years old. <laughs> About half his age, I think, but yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that's an interesting one, and I think um, the, the, the risks in the US are beginning to pile up on a political landscape. Uh, and I don't particularly want to make this podcast about politics. I mean, there's a lot of economics in there and, and, and market related stuff. 
but so far, yeah, it would be fair to say the Democrats haven't covered themselves in glory. It's just been disaster after disaster. We talk about the troop evacuation from Afghanistan. We talk about the issues on the southern border uh, with you know, literally the caravan of hundreds of thousands of people that are coming in as illegal immigrants. Um, and of course, um, now we've got from an economics perspective, inflation running at six, six and a bit percent. Um, 6.2% highest level in 30 years. Highest level in 30 years. And, and, and Congress passing a bill grudgingly, I think, uh, on infrastructure to spend more and more money, which will simply add more fuel to that. Uh, it was only so long ago that we we're talking about the debt ceiling being raised because of their notion of spending money. Mm. And there's now a trillion dollar stimulus package. <laughs> You know, prices going up by 0.9% alone just in October. Maybe maybe this is all part of the, the, the new modern economic theory that if you get, in, get inflation so high that the future value of money is nothing, so paying the debt off is, is, is incidental. It's irrelevant, yeah. Could be, uh, could be an interesting strategy. But yeah, it's uh, it, it, it's really quite staggering what's going on there. And, um, you know, there's some certainly some shreds of opportunity in there. I, I was listening to one market commentator I do follow fairly closely this morning, and, and their uh, take was... Uh, you can expect a, a return of Donald Trump in the White House uh, at the end of this of cycle. Mr. Trump? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and the political ammunition that you have right now is, well, we left things in a reasonable state uh, and look what's been done since. So you're effectively looking at a one-term government um, for, for, for the Biden administration, and that's probably a good thing for markets. So from a market perspective, before we talk about opportunities at the latter part of the broadcast, mm. A.B., where are the risks if you're holding positions in the US? Mm. Is it the high multiple stocks from an inflationary perspective or is there other rungs to that? I think inflation is a, is a huge factor. Uh, and as you rightly identify, Mitch, the, if you've got companies that are high multiple companies that are trading at, you know, we talk about P ratios, you know, a fair value, you know, it might be somewhere in the 18 to 25 range. You've got a company that's trading at 65 or 80 times its future earnings. When inflation starts to increase, those future earnings are worth less in today's money terms. As a consequence, you see the share price dramatically fall. That's why you usually see, you know, on a spike in inflation data, it's usually the NASDAQ index typically because it's a, a, a more stretched valuation uh, market being predominantly tech companies, um, you usually see that fall a little bit harder. Um, yeah, and, and, and some of the sort of political pot shots, if we return to politics for a moment, you know, tax billionaires, because um, everyone hates them, um, you know, they're bad. They're actually the people that create the wealth in the country uh, by employing literally millions of people. And, and I thought that the notion of actually taxing unrealized capital gains uh, was a real interesting avenue to go down. I actually haven't heard of this. Mm. Do you mind sharing? Yeah, so the billionaire tax um, in America, the way the income tax works, a lot of uh, wealthy people will keep their money in the shares in the company uh, and, and the way it's taxed is very different because of that. Uh, so if you've got someone, for example, like Elon Musk, where your share price has gone ballistic and your net worth is telephone number territory, um, most of that uh, value is from unrealized gains. It's a paper valuation based on your stock uh, in his case. And, and yeah, looking at taxing that to, to raise some much needed revenue. And I just wonder, well, what happens if that stock then implodes and drops back down, whether you're able to claim the capital deduction unrealized or otherwise <laughs> on there? And it's just a, a very peculiar, it's, it's an easy target. Uh, it's a very politically driven target. Is it the answer? Probably not, because, you know, you look at high net worth people in America in particular, um, you know, the, you, you're billionaire territory. Um, the the way that you look at tax avoidance is actually relatively low in the US because the tax system uh, 
by virtue of being able to hold stock and defer your tax uh, is, 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 is reasonably fair in, in, through the lenses of those people. There's no incentive to, to go and try and park your money anywhere. And that was sort of made fairly clear when you look at the Pandora Papers, latest version of the Panama Papers. Uh, you know, there's barely anyone of note from the US on there. You can always ask Twitter, should you sell your stock and then watch the share price plummet on the back of it? Yeah, you wonder where, I mean, Mr. Musk has had a few run-ins with the SEC over time in terms <laughs> of you know, price manipulation and talking of different things that have that have obviously um, impacted on Tesla's price. And I just thought that that, that was just beautiful. It's someone that's just so not motivated by money and it's just do no I, don't I? And, uh, and that's okay for him to be in that position. You feel a bit sorry for your average punter that's got investments in those companies and they're watching the volatility of the share price on the back of a tweet but hey it's a good story and uh, gets the stock market in front of people but you know looking at the US in terms of risk that inflation risk is colossal Um, it it is a major major problem and the genie's out of the bottle getting it back in is going to be pretty tough and I think um, you know the prospect of rising interest rates is 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 pretty likely in the US Uh, the Fed have sort of eased off on their their buying of bonds so there's a couple of things at play there and why here in Australia we should be paying particular attention to that because it's a very very good lead as to what we can expect here in Australia dog wags the tail right yeah 100% and, 100%. and yeah it, it, it is it is a a very very unpleasant prospect that's coming down the pipeline I, I guess it leads to opportunities we'll talk about some of those on the other side when we talk about inflation and well, don't tease the, me what are they well I think you know if you, if you look at the the, the, the the Biden infrastructure play um, I think you know Buying infrastructure type stocks is not the play, but I'd look at the basic materials that go into them. That would be the sector I'd probably be focused on because concrete or cement would be the play specifically that I'd tease out of that. If you've got 1.7 billion being spent on building stuff, it's going to have steel in it, which may soak up maybe some of the excess um, supply if China slows down, uh, but also cement obviously being the, the, the major components in construction. So getting exposure to those from a long-term portfolio perspective, it's a very, very helpful tailwind that you're looking at with that kind of stimulus. On the other side, maybe it's a little bit more maverick to be talking of it, and it's not really our bread and butter, but certainly crypto uh, to an extent is seen as being a non-fiat currency and therefore is an inflation hedge too, or an escape valve from the pressures of inflation. Uh, and, And that may well be something that comes through to fruition as we see that. So just to touch on that, AB, forgetting crypto for a second, but stock specific plays within that sector. You and I have had a lot of conversations and we're looking to make this available to our clients, hopefully in the near future. And that is products surrounding ETFs to get broad market exposure. How would you apply that analysis that you've just come up with in regards to an ETF play? Yeah, I mean, there's there's an awful lot of ways of, of 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 skinning the cat when it comes to ETFs, and I think you know you're looking at basic materials type ETF would be one way. Um, from an inflation perspective, if inflation continues to get out of hand, and you think that bond yields, or sorry, I beg your pardon, interest rates are going to move up, then the play would be on bond yields. Uh, my go-to has been for years strategy on that would be TBT, TBT, which is the ultra short U.S. Treasury, twenty-year Treasury. Uh, why? Well, when you get inflation bond prices drop, bond yields rise, and that's an ultra short on bond prices. And that's uh, that's typically quite a good spot uh, to have a play when inflation is out of control. Gold is an interesting one because we haven't really seen gold move up. And, and in the past, when there's been inflationary pressures, gold is seen as that sort of go-to safe Hedge. haven. Um, but given gold's priced in US dollars and with high inflation, you're effectively denigrating the value of US dollars, um, you know, 
that's why I think things like crypto have probably sort of um, had a, a bit of a, an incursion into the territory that typically gold investors would have. Yet a gold investor would be deemed as fairly conservative by normal metrics and someone that's playing in the uh, crypto space a little more maverick. So there's a huge shift in perception, certainly in terms of markets there. And it, and it really boils down, once again, we, we talk of having that the ability to understand fundamental analysis and then propose your own investment strategy on the back of that AB. And as we come to the end of the broadcast, we've spoken of some real risks here, Biden, inflation and China and the opportunities that lie with that. Are there any final words to cap us off here today? Look, I think the the, the, the immediate one that is quantifiable is inflation. Um, you know, we've got a, a situation and I've been fairly vocal about this for a while now, uh, where we've got a reserve bank, which, you know, dug in on the wrong on the wrong message at the time. I think it was largely to provide some support for property. Um, we won't be waiting until 2024 to see interest rate rises. In fact, just looking at some of the data in the market this morning, your markets look like they're factoring in you know, three, maybe four, I think that's probably over, over clubbing a bit, but three, maybe four moves next year, um, which is way earlier than 2024. The risk on there, of course, is is to the property market and, and, and the levels of both gearing that people have uh, and, and the fact that you know people are carrying relative to their income uh, a substantial portion of debt. So any any move in interest rates has a very, very immediate impact. There's actually a lag. Um, you know, it's probably close to a, an interest rate move typically takes from an economics perspective to filter through an economy, yeah, probably something like eight to 12 months. But we know that markets aren't just driven on the economics, they're driven on the psychology and that immediacy, I think you'll see straight away. Uh, it, it's coming, we've talked of it often, Hopefully, our listeners, that people in our ecosystem, uh, are doing things to protect themselves from that. It's been, you know, has been quite well documented. But I think inflation, out of those three risks, is the quantifiable one, and it's the one that's going to present first uh, via an interest rate rise, uh, and that will have a big handbrake effect on our economy. You know, Biden and China, they're two things that are just sitting in the in the in the wings, uh, almost as a sideshow, albeit they're very serious. So you know, it's almost it's, it's not really that entertaining when you consider, you know, the actual impact both can have. Have, uh, on the global economy to to the negative, I might add. Totally. But with risk come opportunity. And the biggest risk of all is to do nothing, as yeah. you mentioned at the very start. So mm. really appreciate you sharing your, your insight here, AB. These are tricky times, Mitch. And we've gone from you know 30 years of certainty of economic growth to more challenging times for investors. And, and, and during those times, you do need to thumb through the playbook and look at all st alternative strategies. De-risking a little bit, I think, is, is sage advice for right now. There will be no opportunities that, that emerge going forward. Um, but I do think de-risking your investment portfolio right now is not a bad idea. Uh, and it might be that you're in the stock market, but you're looking at different plays within the stock market that are more defensive. Uh, it may be if you're in property that you're making sure that you know your cross collateralization is not going to bring you down um, and, and your structuring is in the right way. Um, you know, if you're in the crypto space, you know, we had a huge move last week and no one's been able to pin as to why that was and that's still crypto people are still working out what's driving that whether it's a tweet from somebody or whether it's you know it's something that's uh you know um legislative in terms of a country imposing legislation so there are risks in all of those kinds of asset classes so getting skilled and understanding um, that it's not just about making money, it's having that ability to retain it, which I think we're at that stage of the cycle now where it's not just about opportunity, but it's about being able to protect and preserve your capital is just as important. And preserving and protecting your capital means you need to be insulated from inflation. So finding assets that can do that is the key. You heard it here first. Thanks very much, AB, great advice. Always a pleasure. Thanks very much, Mitch. Cheers.
There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating and share this podcast with your friends so we can get more of this information out there.